0: Well, we are, again, uh, venturing through the Gospel of John, and we are slowing down a bit during this section because we are in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. And this is, uh, all of Scripture is important, but, but this section of Scripture contains Jesus' uh, last words prior to going out and uh, being betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified and these words that are shared here in John are are only found in John and so we've been taking our time looking at chapter 14. Today we finish that chapter. If you have a Bible with you I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along as I read and then as I preach through we'll be looking at different phrases and words. Uh, If you have don't have a Bible with you, if you didn't bring one but would like to use one, if you look in the chair in front of you, you'll find a, the Bible with the translation that I'm going to be using, the ESV version, and if you use that Bible, you'll find our text on page 901. This is John chapter 14, beginning at verse 25 through to the end, verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus has told his disciples many important things during this Last Supper. He's been stressing to them that he is about to leave them and go back to the Father. And and that's why, frankly, they're troubled Scripture tells us, troubled in heart. He's already promised to send them what he's called another helper. A helper or paraclete, as the Greek word says, helper just as much God as he is God. And here now, for the first time in, in verse 25, he finally names this helper. He says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice what Jesus calls this helper. Jesus calls the helper, not the the almighty spirit, not the omnipotent spirit, the powerful spirit, the transcendent or the imminent spirit. He calls the helper the Holy Spirit. That's an important title. Because what Scripture tells us is that God is holy, holy, holy. That is the only attribute that is given to God, that is given three times to the third degree. God is holy. And when we think of the Holy Spirit, when we think of holiness in general, oftentimes I think our minds go straight to uh, ethics, righteousness, morality, when we think of holiness. And There is uh, a case to be made for that. There is a sense in which holiness, uh, because it pertains to God, does pertain to his righteousness. But when we think of holiness, what the Bible primarily means by that word, by the word holy, it means that God is other. It means that God is other than his creation. God's holiness means his otherness. That before God is anything else, We must think of God as the creator, that he is the creator and that we are the creation. And so when we think of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is saying is that the spirit, this other helper, he's already pretty clearly and plainly stated that this other helper is as much God as he is God, but now calling him the Holy Spirit means, and he's pointing directly to, he is other as I am other. The Holy Spirit is coming to you from the Father and from me, as we will see. He is coming to you from outside of this world into this world. And when the Holy Spirit is uh, united to us, what he begins working in us, Scripture says, is he begins working holiness in us. When we are called by God, by his Spirit, we are called out of the world. That's how Scripture defines it. And then the Holy Spirit enters, we are united to Christ by faith, and the Spirit then begins the work of what's called sanctification. Now, we can think of that merely as us being made more upright or righteous, and that's true. The Spirit is battling our sin. But in some way, we can think of the fact that the Spirit is making us more like Christ. He's making us more like the other one, or the Holy One. The longer that the Spirit works in us, the more we are going to be look more and more like aliens to this world. We're going to look more and more like children of God, and less and less like children of Satan. We are going to look more and more like the Holy One, until, Scripture says, one day... When he appears, when Jesus appears, we will finally be like him. We will be holy like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the goal. God is making us more holy. And I've said this before from the pulpit, that God's goal for our life is to make us holy, not necessarily to make us happy. Whatever God uses in our life to make us more like his son is what he's about. We, we our modern-day evangelical church, oftentimes twists that. It presents a God who wants more than anything our happiness. Scripture never says that. In fact, Scripture promises that we will have many hardships in this life, but that God will use those hardships to make us more like his Son, make us more holy. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. Notice here how he's sent. The Holy Spirit is sent, Jesus says, by the Father in Jesus' name. Now, what's interesting here, if you've been paying attention to John 14, is Jesus has been saying that he has been sent, that he is the sent one. He's been sent by the Father. and, And Jesus said, as the sent one, he's been sent not to do his own will, but to do the Father's will. He's been sent not to speak his own words, but to speak the words the Father gave him to speak. Jesus was sent to be the authoritative uh, representative for the Father. And here what we see is that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by the Father in Jesus' name. So now what you have here is this chain that, that the Son was sent by the Father and now the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by both of them. Jesus will actually say in a later text that we study, I will send the Spirit. You find that the Father and the Son are uh, basically acting as a team to send the Spirit to be representative of both of them. And we, we saw in a, a previous sermon that when he enters in, there the father and son also dwell what we have to see here in scripture and you find this in matthew chapter 10 verse 40 you find it all over jesus says something like this and in matthew ten forty. he says this whoever receives you he's talking to his apostles whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me the word apostle means sent one sometimes we get apostle and disciple confused disciple means learner Jesus had lots of disciples he didn't have that many apostles the apostle apostle does not mean learner it means sent one It means one sent as a authoritative representative of this person. And so when Jesus sent his apostles, he's saying, you are going to represent me. And you're going to say what I give you to say. And when someone receives you, they receive me. And when they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. In Jesus's day, in that time, there was this um, figure a person. It was no, known as a shaliach. And this shaliach, this figure that they had back then, he kind of functioned as what we would call today power of attorney. The shaliach's job was to be a representative authorized to execute a task in the interests of another person. And it was known then, during that time, that, that a person's shaliach. Is the same as the person himself. When a person sent his shaliach, it was as though he was the one coming. The shaliach was thought of as identical with the one who commissioned him with full authority and representation. And so what we see here is that kind of thing that these apostles were sent as the shaliachs of Jesus, as the authoritative representatives. And we see this kind of empowerment then, this supernatural empowerment that Jesus gives to them to be his authoritative representatives. We see this in verse 26. He, the the Spirit, will teach you all things. He's going to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit's role was to be a teacher to the Apostles. And the teaching that he was going to do for them was that he was going to bring to mind everything that Jesus taught and said and did. And in addition, we also see that the Holy Spirit gave them illumination and understanding of what those things meant. It wasn't just that they remembered these things and wrote them down, but as they were writing them down and as they were proclaiming them, they were proclaiming them now in newfound power and understanding of what it all meant. That's what the New Testament goes on to explain. The Holy Spirit gives this supernatural recollection. The New Testament books, the ones we have here, are, weren't written until years after Jesus died and rose. And so, the reason they were able to understand and comprehend everything is because Jesus said, The Holy Spirit will give you that <laughs> recollection. It's important for us to understand this. It's important for us to understand that the men who penned Scripture were empowered by the Holy Spirit in a very unique way that is not like the way we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. All Christians as I've mentioned, are given many blessings by the Holy Spirit. Just go back a couple of sermons, we went through all of the blessings that were given. When we're thinking about Christians understanding God's Word, the Holy Spirit gives us supernaturally the power to do that. It is through the Holy Spirit that Scripture is illumined for all Christians he opens our minds to understand it. He opens our minds to understand what our role is in redemptive history. What Jesus has done for us, what salvation means, what our response ought to be. It's through the spirit's opening of our eyes and minds that we are even brought to repentance and faith in the first place. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about this. He says, "The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God," For their folly to him. People in the world, what we once were, people in the flesh, natural people, they don't accept the things of the Word of God. And those people are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But God gives us the Spirit so that we can understand them. I've shared this story before, so some of you have heard it, but some of you are new and and haven't. Uh, It was very interesting when I was an undergrad. That I majored in Greek and I had a professor who had been teaching Greek for years, probably at least 30 years, knew Greek inside and out, and we were actually studying uh, the more difficult Greek, what's called Attic Greek, which you study with uh, people like Plato and and Aristotle and uh, kind of that high uh, Greek culture. The Bible was actually written in a a more simple Greek uh, called Koine Greek. And my professor knew that I was maybe going to go to seminary, so he instituted a a New Testament uh, one-credit class that anyone in the the class could take, and we would just sit and and read through the New Testament Greek, which again is more simple than what my professor has been teaching for 30 years. And so as we were reading through the the Greek New Testament, he would correct us here and there because he would see where we maybe missed a plural, where it should have been singular or something like that. And we were reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and we started reading through Philippians and some of Paul's other uh, letters. And one day I just went up to him and I said, Dr. Sherwin, uh, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? And he said, I can tell you what the grammar says, but I have no idea what it means. That was really powerful to me. Because here was a man who could correct me in the Greek And yet I understood by the power of the Spirit what Jesus meant, and this man was completely in the dark. The power of the Spirit to give us understanding is indeed powerful, and also the Spirit in our own way can give us the words to say in a moment's notice. I asked that of the the men at the men's study on Tuesday. I said, have any of you been in a situation where you've been talking to someone, maybe it's a family member, maybe a coworker or a friend or, or someone, maybe it's even a fellow Christian, uh, uh, it could be non-Christian or Christian, and uh, you're trying to uh, explain something about the Bible and you, for, in some miraculous way, are given every word to say, are given every uh, verse to quote even things that you haven't thought of in years pop into your mind, and you, and you just find after you're finished, there's no way that, that, that I just understood that and remembered that on my own. That had to have been given me by the Holy Spirit. And so we find these empowerments by the Spirit. But as Christ's authoritative repre- representatives, what these apostles did Is they did what Peter says in 2 Peter 1. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we find Paul say in Ephesians is that the church, the New Testament church, this church, any church, is built, he says, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone when we say that the church is apostolic what we mean is that the church is built upon this word this authoritative apostolic word that these men, the men who wrote scripture, Peter says were carried along in a supernatural way that that they were in the sense that they wrote scripture but they were nonetheless passive in the sense that God was writing his word through them and that God made sure that they would write exactly what he wanted them to write and when Jesus is talking to his apostles he is promising them a kind of power that dies out when the last apostle John dies When the last book here, the book of Revelation, was written and John dies, that was the end of that kind of revelation. And the church actually gets in trouble when guys like me start proclaiming new revelation from God. That's where the church begins to uh, go off course. The church needs to be built on this word, the authoritative word. One of my professors, Dr. Gaffin, said, a foundation is only ever laid once. The foundation is the word of the prophets and the apostles. If you continue to lay a foundation, the building becomes a stone block that you cannot live in. That's what Jesus is promising for them. But notice here that he shifts the topic a little bit because he has given them this authorization, he's given them this empowerment to be his authority, authoritative representatives, but he also knows that in doing this for them, they are going to face trials like you wouldn't believe. The kind of struggles, the imprisonment, the threats, they began right away. Just go read the book of Acts. The kind of trouble that these men faced, we have never probably most of us, ever seen the likes of. And every apostle, save for the apostle John, who was exiled and died lonely by himself on the island of Patmos, all the rest of the apostles were martyred for their witness to Christ. Jesus knows what they are going to go through. Jesus knows what they're going to go through in but a few hours. And so Jesus says to them in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He goes back to the very beginning of what he said in the beginning of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus here switches topics and gives them his peace. Jesus, as the Messiah, is uniquely qualified to bring peace on earth. That's, in fact, what the Old Testament prophesied. One of the things that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would bring would be peace to earth. We find that in Isaiah 9 and Ezekiel 37, all over the Old Testament. Now, there are two kinds of peace that Jesus gives to his followers. I'm going to call the first peace objective peace. Objective peace. We find Scripture speaking of this objective peace in passages like Romans 5.1, where Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, he says, look, we were once by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Christ. For Christ himself is our peace. Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christians are in Christ And therefore, by being in Christ, have peace with God. Whereas once we were enmity with God, now by Christ we are at peace with God. Whereas once we were under his condemnation, now in Christ we are at peace. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this peace is objective. It is always ours. It never wavers. It never leaves. It will never abandon us. Christ says that no one can snatch my sheep from my hand. This peace, this objective peace, is not something we can do. Scripture never any, at any place says you must make peace with God by somehow ridding yourself of sin and somehow making yourself righteous. In fact, Scripture says the more we try to make ourselves righteous, the more at war with God we are because we sin even worse. No, God brings us this peace only through the work of Christ. Objective peace is something that Jesus accomplishes for us. And therefore, this peace, this objective peace, is not something that the world could ever give. There's no one else Who's ever lived on the face of the earth and not ever going to be anyone else? If God tarries for another 10,000 years, there will never be another person who lives who can give us this objective peace with God other than Christ. But Jesus gives us something else. His followers not only receive an objective peace from him, but a subjective peace, I'll call it. If you look at our Passage from earlier in the in the service, Philippians chapter four, we find Paul say to us, and this is Paul writing from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let uh, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Look in every in any and every circumstance i've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me we find jesus talking to his disciples he says look don't be anxious don't worry don't be anxious about your life what you're going to eat or what you'll drink colossians 3:15 let the peace of christ rule in your hearts 2 Thessalonians 2, 16, Now may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times and in every way. We even find it in the Old Testament. Psalm 4, 4, 8. The psalmist says, In peace I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is this peace inside, this tranquility, this ability to cease from worry, and anxiety and fear that only Christ can give us that the world cannot offer but the reason I call this a subjective peace is because it is a peace that we can have or not have that we can grab hold of or not grab hold of as Christians this is why Jesus is commanding this to us notice he doesn't command his apostles to get right with God he doesn't command his apostles to save yourself from your sins. No, that he does. But he looks at them and says, Look, I'm telling you now, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. He he doesn't look at them and say, from now on, because of me, your hearts will never be troubled. That's not a promise. What if, if it was a promise that we would always feel peace, the New Testament wouldn't have to continually tell us over and over again not to worry. Scripture commands us all over the place, these things. See, oftentimes, we, brothers and sisters, who are objectively right now at peace with God, We who objectively, right now, have all of our problems solved, all of the big problems of your life have been dealt with in Christ, we nevertheless forget that. We forget that we're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We forget that right now, if we are in Christ, one day we will be given a perfect body, never to be sick again. All of these things are guaranteed in Christ. And yet, sometimes we forget that, that gets lost in the chaos and the hurt and the confusion of this world and we walk around with no peace because we forget where we're seated and we start to think that this is all there is. We can walk away from the subjective peace that God offers. See, this subjective peace with God... I. See, I think that also is something the world can't give. The world definitely can't give the objective peace with God. The world tries to give subjective peace with God. The world offers us cruises to the Caribbean, it offers us a nice, cozy spot in a nice, cushy seat in Starbucks with a latte that that we choose. It offers us sometimes even, even some grandiose uh, bits of peace like the ceasing of the war, World War II. When that happened, there was great rejoicing for the peace that was restored. But you see, even that subjective peace, that semblance of peace, it's not the kind of peace that Jesus offers because it's still coming from a world that is doomed to destruction. Any peace that this world gives us is peace that is not ultimate. It is still peace within this realm, within this present evil age. If you were one of the ones on the Titanic that night, and you didn't get off on a lifeboat, and you're going down, you would have different choices of who you would stand next to and talk to as the ship was going down. You could choose to be with people that are going crazy and screaming and talking about how we're all going to die and frightening you to bits before you go to your death. Or you can stand next to that nice string quartet that played calmly through all kinds of Bach pieces and when they were about to go under, calmly lowered their instruments and said, gentlemen, it was a pleasure playing with you tonight. You'd probably go down to your death feeling a lot better. But in the end, you're all going down. See, that kind of peace, it isn't the peace you're really looking for. If you're going down on the Titanic, the voice you want to hear is the voice from a ship that's afloat. That cries out through the night that says, don't be afraid, you are not going down tonight. If you hear that voice, the peace that you have is light years beyond the peace that that string quartet gave you as you were sinking. This kind of peace is exactly what Jesus as the Messiah has brought to this fallen world because he came from outside of it. Jesus says in verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. There again, he's talking about going back to where he came from. And when he says, I will come to you, I will send you my spirit. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Again, this is, I think, a a subtle rebuke, kind of as as we saw earlier, "If if you really knew me. Now he's saying, if you really loved me. See, until the Holy Spirit comes, they neither really know him or really love him. He says, if you really loved me, you actually would have rejoiced right now. Rather than being upset that I'm leaving you, you would have rejoiced if you really loved me. And why? He says, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus making a statement right here at the end before he leaves and goes to the cross that counters everything he's said up till this point? Is he leaving them? There his final words that, listen, by the way, in case you were mistaken or in case you believe differently, I am not God. I'm less than he is. He's greater than I am. That's actually what many have thought. There was a whole group in the early church called the Arians, not the Nazi Arians, but doesn't have a Y, it has an I in it. And those Arians uh, believed that Jesus was less than God, that Jesus was a created being. And we, we still have modern day Arians, they're called Jehovah's Witnesses. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, we have to read this statement in context. Because if we read it in context of the whole Gospel of John, what we find is that that can't possibly be what Jesus means. Because in John 1.1, 1, 1, which actually the Jehovah's Witnesses have twisted the Greek to not say what it says, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 says clearly that Jesus is God as much God as the Father is God Jesus is as much God as the Holy Spirit is God so unless John is contradicting himself which actually he can't be because John's writing the scripture in the power of God and so God would be contradicting himself then unless John is contradicting himself then he's not saying that It must mean something else when Jesus says, I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. We have to understand that that when the Bible speaks of the Trinity, there are two ways that Scripture speaks of the Trinity. The first way is what theologians call the ontological Trinity. Ontological, it just means uh, ontology or the study of being what someone or something is in its essence. Oftentimes when we think of the Trinity that's how we think of it. When we think of the Trinity we think of God three in one, one in essence, three in person, there before all time and we say, "Wow, what a what a complicated topic to think of." But scripture most of the time is not dealing with the ontological trinity what scripture is describing when it talks about the trinity is what's called the economic trinity or the trinity in its actions in creation and redemption the trinity as father son and holy spirit in their respective roles The Father has a role, the Son has a role, and the Spirit has a role to play in creation and in redemption. If we understand the context of this conversation, what we see is that Jesus, from the beginning of this conversation, has been speaking in the language of the economic trinity. He's been talking about He's been sent by the Father, but he's going to go back to the Father, and when he goes back to the Father, he will then send the Holy Spirit, who's going to be the other helper. All of this language is about the roles that each person of the Trinity plays in salvation. The reason that the Son obeys the Father rather than vice versa is because of the roles, not because the Son is in any way less God than the Father. John Calvin puts it this way. By these words, Jesus shows not how he differs in himself from the Father, but why he came down to us, which was to unite us to God. Christ is not here comparing the Father's divinity with his own, nor his own human nature with the Father's divine essence, but rather his present state with the heavenly glory to which he was soon going to be received. It's as though Jesus is saying, The reason I am leaving you and going to the Father rather than the Father leaving heaven and coming to me is because I am the one who humbled myself. I am the one who took on flesh. I am the one who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, not the Father. And so I am going to him. He is not coming to me because in my humbled state, the Father is greater than I. But the reason you would rejoice is because, as we will see in John 17, he is returning to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And then John 14 closes with verses 29 to 31. Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe, Jesus is the prophet par excellence. And look at what he says. He says, I'm telling you all of this before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Think about just the magnitude of that statement. Jesus, to this point in his ministry, has predicted All of these things that will happen to him. He has predicted that he will be betrayed. He has predicted that he will be denied three times before the the rooster crows. He has predicted that he is going to be arrested, that, that he's going to be mocked, that he's going to be beaten, that he will indeed be crucified, and that on the third day, he's going to rise again from the dead. Now, those of you who have sometimes predicted the outcome of a sporting event think about how difficult it is to always get that right think of the magnitude of jesus is predicting all of these things that will be done to him by different people and different uh, associations that have nothing to do with one another, but will all come together of their own free will and do exactly what he said. In fact, he predicts that before the rooster crows, Peter will deny him three times. And consider, brothers and sisters, that none of this is a fairy tale. That every single thing that Jesus predicted that would happen to him happened exactly as he said it would. Friend, I just want to challenge you this morning that no one else in human history has been able to do that. If you you walked in here this morning thinking that you didn't care that much about Jesus or you didn't want to believe in Jesus or maybe Jesus is a fraud, reconsider this morning by that alone jesus shows he is unlike anyone else who has ever lived and then jesus closes with this i will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming you know judas iscariot the one who betrays him is actually probably at this moment coming for jesus He's coming and he's got a wake of people carrying torches and clubs uh, with him. But isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, let's go because Judas is coming. He says, the ruler of this world. It was Satan who entered Judas before he went out into the night. It is Satan, not Judas, who is the ruler of this world. And it is Satan, not Judas, who is coming for Jesus. Jesus is soon going to be betrayed, abandoned, convicted, mocked, beaten to a bloody pulp, and tortured to death on a Roman cross. Now what would you expect a man who is about to face that to do? I can tell you right now, if that was my future, I would be running the other way as fast as I could. Notice what Jesus does. Rather than run, Jesus goes out to meet the enemy face to face. See, when Jesus is killed, it's going to appear by all watching eyes that he is lost. What man who was killed on the cross in that fashion has won anything? And yet before they go out and before any of this happens, Jesus tells them two things that are of supreme importance. One is that this ruler has no claim on me. And second of all, I go to the cross Not because I'm forced to by Satan. Not because I'm forced to by this world, but out of love and obedience to my Father. See, Satan is the ruler of this world, but Satan had no claim on Christ because Christ is not of this world. Jesus, as the second Adam, did what the first Adam failed to do. He obeyed God all the way even when it took him to the cross. See, the grave couldn't hold him because the grave had no claim on him. Jesus already told everyone this, but he was about to demonstrate it. Jesus, back in John chapter 10, he looked at everyone and said, it is for this reason that the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. See, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus being God had the authority to lay down his life and he had the authority to take his life back up again. No one takes his life from him. Not Judas, not the Jewish leaders, not the Roman soldiers, not Pilate, and not even Satan. No one takes his life from him. He was the lamb who willingly went to the slaughter. And you see, it is in that, brothers and sisters, that we can find our reason to live life without worry. Because if you are in Christ, then you are in the Lamb who was slain for your forgiveness. Christian, Jesus has conquered all of your enemies sin, death, Satan, and the world. All of them have been taken care of already. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for reminding us of what your son did for us. Thank you that he didn't run, that he went out to face the enemy, even when it took him to the cross and to the wrath that you would pour out on him for our sin. Father, remind us so that we may not worry, but have peace that only Jesus can give. It's in his name we pray, amen.